Good morning. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Sherry Hills, and I'm the manager of research at the Ontario Media Development Corporation. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the second of three digital dialogue breakfasts that we're hosting here at Arcadian Court in Toronto. For those of you who don't know the OMDC, we're an economic development agency of the Government of Ontario, and our mandate is to build Ontario's creative economy, which includes the book, film, interactive digital media, magazine, music, and television industries. Our Digital Dialogue Breakfast series brings people together from different creative media industries to discuss topics that we think are of interest across the industries. And we're hoping this morning that you'll meet some new people, reconnect with people you haven't seen for a while, and get some useful takeaways. And if you're interested in OMDC research, we'll be producing a quarterly research bulletin, which will be emailed to subscribers. You can subscribe uh, for research or other industry news at the OMDC website on the About Us page. This morning's topic is exploring best practices in company development. Creative industry businesses in Ontario are successfully creating, marketing, and selling content. Our panel will discuss company development and strategies for growth. We're pleased to have Vishkana, host and producer of Creative Control with Vishkana, to moderate our panel today. The industry panelists are Asha Denier, EVP Legal and Business Affairs, Blue Ant Media, Krista Face, CEO and publisher, Foodism and Escapism Toronto, Kit Redman, partner and executive producer, RTR Media, and Ian Stanger, co-founder and label manager at Black Box Music. And now to our moderator, Vish. Based in Guelph, uh, Vish has played in several bands and is an assistant editor at Exclaim Magazine, where he currently oversees the comedy section. He was host and producer at CBC Radio 3 and is an on-air columnist for the CBC Radio 1 program, The Next Chapter with Sheila Rogers. He writes a monthly arts column for the Guelph Mercury Tribune. His written work has appeared in Now, The Globe and Mail, Huffington Post, and iWeekly, just to name a few. Please join me in welcoming Vish Khanna. Thank you, Sherry. How about a hand for Sherry and the OMDC as well? Please uh, keep, uh, keep it going there. Thank you. Well, welcome. Thank you all for being here in uh, blistering hot Toronto. Is anyone from out of town? No? No. Oh. Well, then you, you're used to it, I guess. Thank you for being here and being here early. Uh, we don't have, in a, weird, in a way, we don't have a lot of time, so I want to get right to it. And what I've decided to do is ask each of our panelists to introduce themselves, uh, their affiliation, perhaps the city that they live in, or it sounds like it's probably going to be Toronto. Uh, and uh, anything else they'd want to say at this point. So why don't we begin here? Do you mind introducing yourself to these people? Sure. Asha? Hello, everybody. I'm Asha Danier, and um, I run legal and business affairs at Blue Ant. Um, I would say I have the great privilege now of having successfully moved away primarily from the legal work in the company, and I now get to participate quite a bit in sort of strategic decisions about how we grow the company. So hopefully I'll be able to give you guys some useful insights, but you know, no guarantees. Nice. <laughs> and, and can you just briefly, briefly describe what, what is it that Blue Ant does per se? Sure. So Blue Ant is a, our buzzword is we're a multi-platform international media company. And we have um, really three or four businesses. The first is our traditional Canadian media business. We own a bunch of specialty channels in Canada that we've had since day one of the company. We're now six years old. Um, the second thing we have, the, the second thing we do is we launch linear channels and over-the-top um, proprietary platforms globally. The third thing we do is produce content. And the fourth thing we do is distribute that content, not on our own proprietary channels in Canada and globally, but also through traditional markets to broadcasters and over-the-top platforms in other parts of the world. Excellent. Okay. And before we move on, though, I just briefly, uh, do you mind telling us how you got into this? I'm just curious. So what is your background? How did you enter this realm? Do you remember what motivated that? Uh, so I would say that uh, before I went to law school, I worked for a company, which I'm sure everybody knows, called Nelvana. But... I'm super old, so <laughs> that was before Nelvana was a public company. It was before they were part of Chorus. It was when they were this like weird, funky, slightly dysfunctional company out in Liberty Village that was run by these three like ex-hippies. 
and actually the story goes that they came up with the original, you know, whatever it was, few thousand bucks to start Nelvana by dealing weed. <laughs> I actually think that's true. Anyway, um, before, so, so that was my first real job out of college, and I remember looking around at the, at the business and looking at the women who actually had a voice there, and there were two women there. There, there was uh, Eleanor, I can't remember her last name, but she was the general counsel, and they happened to have a, a, a woman who was a CFO at the time, and I was like, that's interesting. They actually, people are listening to those two women, and I think I gotta go get a professional degree. <laughs> so it was between you know, business or law, I ended up going to law school, and I always had it in my mind that I wanted to end up in like a small, slightly dysfunctional media company. <laughs> and I have. <laughs> well, congratulations, thank you. How about a round of applause for Asha? <laughs> Tepid applause, but uh, that's fine. Maybe it's the weed, the hankering, I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's move on uh, to, the, to the next panelist, please. Please introduce yourself. Hi, guys. My name is Krista Faist. I am the CEO and publisher of 22 Media Group, uh, but we are probably better known for the two titles we've launched here in Canada, which are Foodism and Escapism. Uh, we are actually a sister company to a much larger UK publishing house called Square Up Media. Uh, so those brands, Foodism, Escapism, as well as another 18 titles are all owned under the Square Up Media title over there. And I brought operations here about just approaching three years ago to launch, uh, to launch some of the titles here. So we started with Foodism two and a half years ago and Escapism just came out in March. Uh, so yeah, I lead up all operations here. Uh, we have a team, it's what started with me has now grown into a team of about 12 10 full-time and two part-time, uh, and we still do work very closely with the UK team, but uh, a lot of the operations have moved over to Canada now. Nice. Yeah. Now, what other isms are in the, on the horizon? You've got the foodism, you've got the escapism. Are there, is there another ism on the on You know the what? We've, we've already maxed out the isms in our portfolio. <laughs> you would think we'd have more, um, but none of th those are the two, um, and, and foodism is obviously about food and escapism is about travel, which are, you know, very synonymous these days. So um, one, one actually began in the other uh, in, in London. So those two kind of come as a package. And uh, I can tell you that the plans would be to look at bringing those, building those titles worldwide um, in other markets versus potentially bringing some of the other titles here. Um, we're very strategic with what ones we bring here, which ones aren't in the market, uh, and and those two seem to be the big ones. So okay. no no isms. No other in the isms future. on the horizon. Okay, that's fair. Now same question. Can you talk a little bit about what got you into this realm? Yeah, I got into this in a bit of a roundabout way. I went to school for journalism. Uh, I specialized in broadcast journalism, and began working at uh, Chum, which was uh, actually bought out by CTV the very last day of my first probationary job there. So I was really excited. I thought I'd done really well. I thought I had a job in broadcasting, and I sat in the room as about 60 people's jobs were cut. And it, it, you know, I was young. I was young, but I think I was smart enough to go, I'm not sure if there's job, a job in this for me right now. Hmm. So I moved into marketing and PR for a little while and then went over to London. So I worked in London for four years with the publishing house there. Um, fell into that a bit because it just melded journalism with the marketing and PR I had been doing, um, and it was a communications role. And then when it was time to come home, um, I just went for it, and I said that there is a massive opportunity in Canada for these titles, yeah. and I want to be the one to champion that. Will you let me get on a plane <laughs> and do it? And I have some really great people over there that said yes, and you know, here we are three years later. I just got back uh, from there last week, and there's lots of big plans. Um, we really use Toronto as a test market for the rest of uh, the worldwide markets. And, you know, we're, we're surpassing expectations that way. So it's a really exciting time. Um, I find it a bit funny, though, because another part of what last week was, was to go into other platforms that foodism and escapism can live on. And video just seems to be what everyone's talking about. So in a weird way, I'm now shifting back to a lot of the skills I learned in school and where my passion was, which was in video content. Um, so I may not ever be the news reporter on TV that I probably thought I wanted to be when 
I was 11, but in a roundabout way, I'm coming back to where um, my, my skills and my real excitement were because we really do see our magazines as an advertisement for the entire brand, and, and video is going to be a big future for that. So Excellent. Well, thank you, Krista. How about a round of applause for Krista, please? Okay, we move down to uh, Kit. Go ahead. Um, my name's Kit Redmond. I am uh, a partner, a founding partner of RTR Media. Uh, RTR Media is a content production company. Probably five or six years ago, we would have said we were a television production company. Uh, but now I realize it's producing content for people on whatever platform they want to receive it. Uh, the main bulk of our business is doing lifestyle television programming. Uh, our business model has changed drastically over the last three or four years. Uh, currently, I would say about 95% of our production is done in the United States. Uh, we do all of our post-production in Canada, our development out of New York and Toronto, and corporate is in Canada. Um, so it's been a big change. Um, but we love what we do, and I'm very happy to be leading a very interesting and innovative team. You say 95% of your production is in the U.S. Does that speak to some kind of lack of foresight in this country, or is it just that's where the money is? Well, I think um, I love producing shows in Canada. I adore producing shows in Canada. We have a show that's a hit show in the United States called Hometown, and it's shot in Laurel, Mississippi, and I would love to be doing hometown Coburg, Ontario. Uh, but there's been a massive round of consolidation, uh, and that has definitely lessened the uh, need for programming. Uh, we have three shows uh, on HGTV in the United States. Um, one of them, Hometown, is pretty much consistently in the top five cable shows. Uh, so we produce really good shows, and they do really well. Um, but in Canada right now, those shows are all played hmm. on HGTV Canada. Right. Um, so it's just changing times. And I think I saw that. I think the bright light in Canada right now for owning your own content, which is hugely important. I mean, we can all talk about that, the need to own your own content and your own rights, uh, is in the digital space. Okay. Uh, so um, <coughs> we have two digital series in the United States. Uh, really excited about the CBC's Canada First and uh, digital policy. Mm -hmm. And we also uh, have our own platform called Coral that we are developing. And uh, that's been really exciting for us. So TV is a tough place for lifestyle producers in Canada. It's been a fabulous place. And the move to the United States uh, has been good for us. Fortunately, we've been able to keep most of our jobs in Ontario by doing post-production and sending a lot of our people down. And the EDC has helped a lot with that. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a transition. You invoked Coburg, Ontario there, which is where my ex-girlfriend is from, and now I'm distracted. Um, did she <laughs> put you up place. to that? Did you mention that because of something I'm she mentioned Coburg to you? I'm a Coburg girl. You are from Coburg. I'm, I'll tell you all about Coburg later. I know a fair <laughs> amount about it. Uh, let me tell you. I have some memories of Coburg. Not good, but no, it's a lovely, lovely little place. Uh, did you, I don't know if we got to this, how did you get into this business, so to speak? Well, Christy and I have very similar backgrounds, actually. I studied journalism and broadcast journalism, and I started my career with the CBC, which I adored. Same here. Loved. Loved the CBC. I think everybody should work for the CBC at least once in their career. That's what they felt about me, too. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, and one of my first beats was business. Oh, okay. Uh, so I learned a lot about business, and my father was an entrepreneur in Coburg. Um, but I was a reporter and very much had similar goals to you. But as time went on, I learned that there were many different ways to tell a story. Right. And that sometimes you have to really, not sometimes, I would say all the time, you really have to look at your audience and then choose the best way to tell the story to the audience you want to reach. Sometimes that might be a children's show. Sometimes it might be a movie. Sometimes it might be a documentary. Sometimes it might be a YouTube video. So it's how you want to reach the person yeah. is the way to do it. And that was a big mind shifter for me about, 
I don't know, halfway through my career. So I ended up working for uh, various networks. And then one day, uh, Chorus bought Moffitt and came in and laid off 70 women in <laughs> Toronto in one day. Um, 70 and, women, yep. particularly. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And was the first to get fired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was also the women's network. So oh, I, see. Uh, okay. I, I should preface that. Uh, it wasn't discriminatory towards women, but. Um, and, you know, I too kind of went, oh my God, what am I going to do? But some of the best producers I worked with uh, who were in different parts of the company or country came to me and said, would you do development for us? And you're on the ground in Toronto. And then eventually one of those producers asked to start RTR Media in Toronto and would I be a partner? And that was 15 years ago and I haven't looked back. Excellent. Well, that's amazing. How about a hand for Kit? Thank you, Kit. We <laughs> And finally, please introduce yourself, sir. Hi, guys. My name is Ian Stanger. I'm the co-founder and label manager of Black Box Music, which is an independent record label, music publisher, and artist management company based in Mississauga. Uh, we've been active since 2004, which I'm still trying to comprehend. Um, we operate Black Box as our own business, and then we also have tangential sort of partnership businesses with BMG, which is an international uh, record label run out of uh, the UK with international offices all over the world, um, and also with a, a new publishing venture that we are doing with uh, Grammy Award winner Babyface, um, which is, again, sort of a, a North American partnership uh, expanding to uh, global over the next uh, 12 months, hopefully. Okay. Great. And Ian, similar question as I've asked the others. Can you just briefly talk about how you got into this realm? Yeah. Um, the, the really brief story is that I was a 17-year-old punk rock kid and touring the country and playing in bands. And uh, What were your bands? Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of them. Um, and uh, my partner, uh, Jason, and I, Jason was managing the band at the time, and neither of us particularly knew what we were doing. But... Um, in, in searching for a record deal for, our, uh, for, for my band, we really couldn't find anything. We didn't think that we could do better ourselves. Um, so we did that and uh, took out bank loans and started this, this record company that is somehow still has the lights on. So over the years, we've uh, diversified into multi-genre. Um, you know, we are distributed by Universal, so there's a major label support component to it. Um, but this is uh, essentially uh, Jason and my sort of partnership on it, and uh, we've, you know, staffed up in, in recent years and, and added some help, and um, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting ride. Now, you named your company Black Box, which is normally uh, the last thing they find after a plane crash. Is that right? Yes. Did you read that somewhere, or did you, or did you just put that together? I just made that up right now. Because that is 100%, that was the, the, the idea behind the name. Because the record industry is like a crashing plane. It was, and I, I was saying this to a couple of the panelists earlier on, that like we came into this industry um, as the plane was going down. Um, we don't know what the boom times of music uh, you know, production and, and, and music sales were. Um, we've really been operating through this very tumultuous uh, time where the industry is trying to figure out what it was going to turn itself into, and I think it's relatively settled in the last uh, probably three years or so, which is exciting. Um, but it's the first time that we've really known stability and known what the future is going to hold, or at least can have a reasonable idea of that. Um, before that, it's just been, you know, trying to develop a business in an industry that was in such a crazy transition. Right. All right. Well, Ian, it's great to have you here. And how about a hand for Ian as well? Thank you. So I want to get into a few topics. I kind of want to open the floor now to a discussion uh, among the panelists. And uh, there's a couple of things I want to begin with. And I think, since Ian, you, you spoke last, I might actually uh, feed this back to you. You've, you kind of alluded to this. But can you talk about how your company has changed since you first started it when the record industry was chaos? And, and you said in recent years it seems to have stabilized. Right. So my question to everyone is basically, Talk about that point A and, and talk about how that, as briefly as you can, how it's changed and how you feel like you've adapted to the demands of the marketplace uh, to stabilize yourselves in some way, if you have. If you haven't, that's fine. <laughs> we can talk. We're all friends. We'll figure it out together. But Ian, can you talk about that in terms of when you started and where you're at now? Yeah, I mean, when we started, it was, it was just the two of us. Um, you know, in the earliest days, it was the two of us in a living room, you know. Um, 
And I think, you know, over the years, uh, you know, sort of following our intuition and finding some really great artists gave us opportunities to, um, to sustain and to survive, like, as I said, when times were sort of tough and tumultuous. Um, you know, I think uh, diversifying genres, we initially started as a more sort of niche um, subculture type of, of label, but expanding into different genres um, really gave us an opportunity to understand how to operate differently and how different genres may, uh, how doing things differently in different genres may uh, inform decisions we make in, in other areas. Um, so I think, like, for us, it was about diversifying, about making sure that we didn't get stuck in, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a certain lane or in a pigeonhole. Um, and that's really allowed us to grow, and um, that allowed us to uh, expand our network more quickly because we were making contact with people um, that we probably never would have crossed paths with if we hadn't decided to diversify the way that we did. Um, I think that's probably, if I was going to boil it down to one particular concept, the diversification for us was the most important. Yeah, you've used terms like expanding your talent roster and that diversity that you discuss. All of this seems to be a way of appealing to the broadest audience possible not yeah. necessarily i don't know that it was like for us we've always like as much as we've diversified our roster and diversified our the genres that we work within um you know quite often those artists have, have very sort of focused niche audiences um obviously the the, the goal sh is always to expand that audience as large as possible but also um, it sounds like in your work you would tap into different niche audiences right like if you're correct. you're going for different genres different fan bases, you, you just want as many niche audiences as possible. For sure, and every now and then those, 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 those audiences are gonna, are gonna coalesce um, behind some larger, more cultural sort of uh, you know, project or artist. And, right. and that's, that's, it's always exciting to sort of see that, and if we're able to plant some seeds in a bunch of different communities, uh, and eventually, you know, at, at some point, those things come together, that's, you know, that, that's exciting. I don't think that's necessarily the end goal, but understanding the value of um, having you know a presence in each of these different uh, genres or subcultures, however you want to communities, however you want right. to frame it, that's that definitely was important. It's kind of a slow-moving expansion, like you're yeah. kind of reaching people little clusters at a time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Can anyone else speak to that in terms of their own business? Uh, anyone want to take a, a shot at answering this question or speaking? I will because a lot yeah. of what Ian is saying is very is resonating a lot with me. Um, I would say we were and still are on the plane going down in the print world. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad I, I brought up that analogy. It's a good one. Yeah, it is. Well, we, talk, we talked about For it. For a like, long weekend. We talked about it a little bit before about how, like, and I didn't really realize until these ladies put it into perspective for me, but music, I don't necessarily think of music as a, as, as, as the, as you said, the canary the in the canary colon. The canary in the mine. But, yeah. um, because I sort of felt, never having experienced the boom of it, that, um, that music was, was, was behind everything else, but understanding, seeing now that like, that music is sort of leading the way in terms of redefining itself with television and video production falling behind that and then ultimately you publishing. You give us hope. Yeah, so sort of not to, to cut you off, but I, like, I definitely see how this is sort of working in phases and how everybody up here is affected by that. But Krista, don't you think, I think, hanging out with my wife <clears throat> on the couch and we're flipping channels, I feel like food people are the new rock stars. Like I feel like yeah. food is just, yeah. that is a, weird industry like i mean uh, can you speak to that like it just feels like tastes have changed as well i feel like music is you think it's okay i'm still worried about it by the way um in terms of its cultural cachet but food has exploded hasn't it yeah and it was the it was a very strategic move to bring foodism of 18 brands that we looked at we we knew foodism was the one to bring here uh not just because food is universal, but because particularly in Toronto, there has been and there still is a kind of renaissance in the food world. So um, it's it's by far um, the one, even when, when I go over to London, it's the one that people just get really, really excited about. And there is just this whole world now of food, and we feel very lucky to, um, to capitalize on it. I think that's one of the reasons foodism has done well, because I did get a lot of I got more than a, a few weird looks when I walked into rooms and said, I'm launching a print magazine. This was two years ago. Um, and, you know, I'm, the OMDC was very excited about it, of course, but there were, there were a lot of people that were a little bit skeptical. 
Um, so what we just knew what we had to do from the beginning, which is what has made us so successful in London, is just flip the script on what people think print media is, um, take it off newsstand, take it off the subscription model, put it out on the streets, literally, which is where you get our magazines. Um, you know, it's handed out by, by, by people, and it's, it's quite a slick system. They're not just on the street. Is but, it a free magazine? So they're free. They're free, okay. uh, We've penned the term freemium. I don't think we actually penned it, but we took free and premium and put them together. No, no, I know. I figured that out. I knew and, what you were yeah, doing there. And in case you needed the explanation, it's yeah. those two words together, but that's really how we describe it. And then once people... Uh, see it, um, it, it's very much this shift of, oh, this is free. They read it and they realize that the content level is really up there. The design level is up there. The type of advertisers we're working with um, rivals what's on the newsstand without a cover price. So for us, that was kind of the big thing into the market was to show people that print is still very much alive. People want tangible products. And again, I got some weird looks when they said, but your demo's 25 to 35. They live on computers and screens. But we are carving out this, this great niche of people that still want to sit there and read something nice and hold it in their hands, whether it's on a plane with escapism or sitting in front of the TV watching Food Network and then also having this great coffee table guide. So that was a big part of it is just finding the niche of people that still want uh, tangible print products. But then also to Ian's point is just diversifying our platform we really see the print magazine as a gateway into the brand um, of foodism and the brand of escapism. We have a, a website, we have a newsletter, which we put a lot of work into that mimics the quality of the magazine that goes out every Wednesday. Um, we have social channels, events with our clients, moving into experiential. Uh, so that's the way, and as an ad-funded business, that's the way that we present ourselves to, to advertisers is that the print magazine is the gateway into us, um, and we just continue to diversify not just how we're working with people in the magazine, but how we're bringing them into all of our other channels as well. So right. I think that's hopefully what's going to help us on the print side um, moving forward. And, you know, we we don't have huge plans to continue to launch other print titles, it really is about having those core ones, having the print magazine that leads people into the rest of our content. So Krista and Ian, there's a parallel between food and music, or your description of your magazine and music, and I wonder if Asha or Kit can speak to their own experience with this, because a new, one of the new business models is giving stuff away. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating to me. Like Music is pretty much, if you subscribe to it, subscription service, you get everything you want. Sometimes bands are just like, here's my record on Bandcamp, and you're giving away your magazine. And the appeal to advertisers and sponsors is that we're reaching this many people. But as a business model, I imagine some people are here like, well, how do you make money? You're ad-based and whatnot. But that's still a bit confusing. Like I say, Kit, Asha, can you speak to this? Like, Do you engage with free content? um, Yes. So about 20% of what we're doing is on a platform, and that platform is composed of YouTube, Facebook, um, various other social platforms, and a website, and everything is free. And if, if you have a pencil and a piece of paper, the way I look at it is it used to be if you looked at a wheel, like an old-fashioned wheel with spokes, it used to be for us that the uh, TV show was the center of the wheel. But now... It's the brand, it's the niche that you serve, it's your area of specialization. The rim of the wheel is the community. Mm. And the community has value. That is where your value is. So your brand, whether it's foodism or in our case, Coral or one of our shows, is that there are spokes going out from that brand and that's your diversification. So it might start with the magazine and then it might be the YouTube channel or the visual or the website or the speaking engagements or, you know, music has done this brilliantly, brilliantly. We have a lot of lessons to learn from music. And then that wheel, that is what the advertiser wants. They want access to your community and your intimate relationship with that very narrow niche targeted community who wants exactly what they want to sell. And then a successful business model is associating with brands who share the same values as you do and therefore actually enhance your community versus annoying them. So I would say 
we don't really give anything away for free. <laughs> you don't. You don't. We, nothing. No, I was just thinking. We we toyed with the idea when we launched our first over-the-top app, which is called Love Nature, which is a natural history-based um, over-the-top app. It's sort of Netflix for nature lovers. Uh, we toyed with the idea of have, having that be a free model, and we just we just couldn't make it work. Mm-hmm. And I will say, even as a subscription model, we haven't been super successful at that. And that was because, you know, turns out you can't just like drop an app into the universe and expect people to find you. You need to have enormous marketing dollars behind something like that. And I think we were a little naive, but we learned some good lessons. But what I will say, sort of taking the last two questions and putting them together... When, When Blue Ant started, we were a Canadian broadcaster. We owned some specialty channels. And there were two, th- and, and what, and the sort of idea, the, the provenance behind Blue Ant was, okay, this is not going to last forever. We've got, we've got a runway where we're, we've got some assets that are kicking off nice cash flow and EBITDA. And there are going to be some opportunities that come out of the earthquake that's happening in the content universe. And so what we've got to do is take this cash while we're getting it and deploy it in yeah. some new ways that are going to be able to take advantage of this this earthquake, this seismic shift in the universe. Um, And there were sort of two key things that we understood we had to do. And we didn't know how this was going to manifest, but there were were two key kind of filters that we used when we looked at opportunities. One was they needed to be global or international. We needed to get outside of Canada. And the second was that we had to find a way to own IP rights. And once we were able to do that, we're now in a position where when we're dealing with the platforms that are giving away their content for free, so YouTube Red and Facebook, and you know, we're, we are producing content for some of those platforms. We are, I won't say we're there yet, but we are beginning to get to the point where we can negotiate to be able to retain some rights right. so that we're getting revenue from that content and not just selling it, not just being service producers for... Yeah, and one of the key things with that is our regulatory system in Canada, which is so valuable. And when uh, we look at uh, the OMDC and the tax credits that they provide, it has done two things for us. One, while we were making that transition very much from being a national-based company to what you have to be today is a global-based company we did have that period of time where we could transition. And it took us about three years to make that transition. But um, secondly, by having some of the assistance that these, um, whether it's EDC or OMDC or CAFCO, is to make that global leap and to retain the rights, we can bring money to the table, but it has a hook. And the hook is the producer has to own it. Right. And that's Ownership, because yeah. CAVCO and OMDC, so we can go, oh, you know, we don't have to be the bad guy. We're bringing taxpayer dollars here, and we're bringing jobs to Ontario. So if you're going to do this, you have to make sure that we retain the rights. And that is crucial. And I think one of the big debates, and I know the federal government is certainly looking at this as is the Ontario, is um, some of the things we've done in TV we don't need to do the same things in digital, but we need, we need to be carefully watching right now hmm. because it's happening so fast. The plane is going down fast, and I hope <clears throat> that video content and production will, will make the nice swoop up that music has, but we're still on the way down, in yeah, my opinion. We have to essentially incentivize, because you know, there's a question of whether... Well, we have to be able to find a way to incentivize streaming platforms to let Canadians hold on to some of the rights. Yes. That's really, right. that's the mechanism. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we don't have a ton of time left, and I want to uh, leave time for an important question. I think a few of you have talked about uh, diversity uh, and um, talent retention and, mm. and how those two uh, things intertwine in terms of uh, reaching a broader audience and appealing to advertisers. Um, can you comment on the relationship between building a workplace that attracts and retains that kind of talent base, those kinds of employees, um, with a, within a corporate culture that is inclusive, free from harassment? Uh, it, have you found it beneficial to have um, explicit policies in this regard in this day and age? Well, I'll, I'll jump in because 
one of, I, ha, I started RTR Media for two reasons. One, I wanted to make great shows, but two, I had a family, I had a marriage, I had an ailing mother, um, and I really wanted to create a company where you created the environment where creative people could do their best work while still nurturing their friends, family, and community. And anybody who works for RTR knows that's what we aspire to. It's mm -hmm. not what we're always able to do. And some people say, well, that's very nice of you. And I say, that's very smart of me because we have attracted top talent because of that and talent from all areas. So that corporate culture has been an integral um, part of our employment strategy. So it sounds like you, part of what you're saying is as a business owner, you're trying to strike a, for your employees strike a nice work-life balance, among other things. Like, that's something that's important it's, to you. It's uh, if you give them the freedom, if you trust them, you hire people smarter than you, yeah. and you trust them, yeah. and you give them a great deal of flexibility so that they can walk their child to school and maybe not drive in between 8 and 9 in the morning, but between 9 and 10, yeah. they will go to the ends of the earth for you. Yeah. I did that for bosses who did that for me, yeah. and I really believe that instead of just being isolated, if your entire corporate culture was based around that, it would pay off. And, and we've attracted people from much bigger companies to come work with us because of that. Yeah, it's huge. That's, that's, I agree with you. I agree. Does anyone else want to speak to this question of of being a bit more, uh, or, or a lot more progressive about your work policies and, and retaining talent? Anybody? Um, I'll, I'll say something because it, it might be, I may have the smallest, uh, the smallest team up here on the panel. I'm, I'm not, I know between it's you not a competition. for sure, but I'm I just not sure with Ian. It's um, growing the fastest. <laughs> but what I'll say, yeah, it's definitely growing the fastest, but my team um, of the 12 is exclusively um, millennials, if you will. So the kind of corporate culture that I've been building has been interesting because um, I'm hiring people that are very, very good at their jobs that have different demands than even I did when I first got out of school and um, different goals. And, um, you know, there's a, a, a trend of finding that work-life balance and um, working from home, especially on the creative side. I get a lot of um, requests that way on the, on the creative side of my business um, to, to find that balance. Um, but it's been interesting because what I have found, though, that, you know, even though the millennials will have a different goal or different needs with a business, there's still um, this core value of wanting to be a part of something really, really cool. And that's the benefit that we really bring to it is I've had talent from larger publishing houses come over because they've really wanted to own something. And when I, when I tell them, that you can really be a part of something, I mean it, because I sat there by myself and grew this um, from the ground up, and every person I've been bringing in along the way has been a massive part of growing that. So we make decisions together as a team. Uh, we have a gut check in the office, whether it's when we're writing a piece of content, about to pitch an advertiser, think of a different content uh, strategy. We gut check it against ourselves because we are the readers of the content that we're producing. Um, so it really allows everyone to feel a part of it. And I think that's been something interesting I've learned um, with this age group is they really, truly, they may have other um, needs and wants from a corporate culture side of things, but at the core, they really want to own something and be, be a part of something. And so we're able to deliver that. And I think um, we'll have our ups and downs in terms of agreeing on how to to grow the business, but we do it together. And yeah. I think that's what's really important. Okay, well, Kit and Krista, you've both spoken to uh, trying to keep things happy <laughs> and uh, keep people happy and working as a team. But I wanna go back to the question uh, uh, that I, maybe I didn't frame it properly, but this notion of inclu inclusivity, uh, creating a harassment-free environment as well as a, a happy one, uh, an anti-oppressive environment, uh, Ian, uh, Asha, can either of you speak to, or both of you, can you speak to that in terms of whether or not you've applied such practices in your own businesses and how? So I feel like we're not giving Ian an opportunity to speak, so I'm sorry, but this no, is like so near mean. and dear to my heart that I have to answer this question. Sure. So I have a theory about this. You have which, a theory? Yeah. Okay. Which is, so policies are important, you gotta have those, um, you know, you gotta make sure they're distributed to people, blah, blah, blah. But I have come to believe 
that the single defining factor about the environment with respect to inclusivity, uh, you know, ability to attract people, work-life balance, um, diversity, sexual harassment is about the CEO. Yeah. And if you have a CEO who believes in it and like is willing to put resources, dollars, and make the sacrifices required, because there are sacrifices required to, to institute that kind of environment, then you're fine. And if you don't have that, you can write all the policies you want, and it'll make zero difference. So hmm. that is my advice to everybody. Figure out who the CEO is before you go work anywhere <laughs> and find out if that person has integrity and believes in the same things you believe in. Sometimes you need a stroke of the pen decision, and it's something I very rarely do. But when we went into Mississippi, I said, our crew will reflect the cultural values that we're bringing in, which included diversity and sexual orientation and, and race. And um, I have a very enlightened team, and they're under the gun. Well, you know, we can't promise that we can do that. And I went, it, I'm not asking you to promise. I'm telling you to do it. Right. And they did it. And I'm very glad they did. Now uh, I see interns walking in the door, and sometimes you need a stroke of the pen decision. Yeah. 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 Before we get to the Q&A, Ian, I want to give you an opportunity to speak. Do you have anything you want to say on this topic? I agree. <laughs> no, I, like I mean, our our company. I think I might have Chris to beat. We're we're, we're only uh, seven in our office, so it's um, it's easy to um, try to establish and maintain and control that culture when the when the when the team is so small. We set expectations very early. Um, we set expectations even through the interviewing process about the type of culture that we want to promote in our in, in our in our office and in our environment. Um, and uh, that's you know. Music and the creative industries that feels always, have always um, sh have always strived is that the right uh, to, to 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 be progressive, and um, our company is no different. We we you know right now we are uh, four men and and, and three women um, of varying ages and and, and different backgrounds, and um, that diversity is important to us, especially in the creative industry, because I think that they. Um, everybody brings their own experience. So and that's, that's valuable to us. All right. Well, thank you, Ian. Uh, we are going to move on to a Q&A. Are there any questions in the audience? Okay, yes. Please raise your hands. Uh, a mic will be brought to you uh, as soon as it can. If you can limit yourself to one question, uh, that would be great uh, so that we have time for everyone. So let's start over here. Hi. Um, Kit, and it actually applies to Krista too, do you think you could have started your company now? Because it seems to me that you kind of built it on TV back in the days when it was easier to get TV financed and where that could be your anchor. Now, as a woman starting a, a kind of digital or a, such a massive community building operation would be really hard to finance and Well, I can tell going. you yes, because... Um, when I started RTR, I had two business partners who uh, already owned a television production company in Montreal, uh, and they helped me out, uh, which was hugely important. I'll never forget that first meeting at the bank, right, where you are asked to mortgage your home and to defer your fees. You're like, how do I live? Um, but recently in our digital team, one of the people who was on our channel, Sarah Lynn Koshan, uh, the domestic geek, and um, another young woman in the company basically really spearheaded that initiative. And we actually went to the OMDC with their innovation fund. And um, they um, quite astutely put in a business component that we had to do. And we had to talk to investment bankers. And, uh, and we decided to spin the company out. So now those two young women, who are both under 30, uh, run an Ontario-based company with seven employees and are successful. So I would say yes. Find a good mentor. Talk to the OMDC. Have a really good idea. Do a business plan and get the financing. So yes. Krista, did you, was that directed at Krista as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the resources I had, um, well, from a resource perspective, were invaluable. Um, I, 
our business model didn't rely on a lot of capital investment in the beginning, so we're very fortunate that way. It was very much a self-sustaining model that when I started to get advertisers, I had a business. But what I was massively supported by was the resources and those questions every few days um, as I was learning my feet over here. Um, that was extremely valuable. So I, I definitely couldn't have done it without um, having that company that had been in it for 10 years to, to advise on certain things, certainly. Okay, thank you. Yes, go ahead. Um, so just going back to your discussion about corporate culture. So I work as an independent consultant. I work a lot with um, now small startups. What I'm finding is that a lot of these new startups, because they don't have the money behind them, are they don't have a bricks and mortar kind of uh, company, and they expand and contract depending on the project or whatever they're working on. So they have a really hard time, and I have a hard time with them, in developing a corporate culture. Just want your thoughts on that. Like, how do you build that when, when people aren't there all the time? What investment, or how can I sort of guide them in, in creating some sort of ownership or involvement so they're not just coming in and doing and leaving? So what we did when we started Blue Ant was we just had the leaders of the company sat around and talked about it, like, for hours. I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. Like, what company spends this much time talking about culture? Um, we have to build a business. But I'm so glad we did it because, I mean, it sort of goes back to what I was saying before. You have to have leadership that really believes in the culture and, and you have to really identify what that means. And then they, if they embody that, they kind of, through osmosis, transfer it to anybody that walks in the door if it's sort of palpable and identifiable. You know, we went through the exercise of, like, writing a mission statement and having the words that we put on mugs. And, you know, everyone thought it was super goofy. But it, it, was, it, it was a good thing for us to exercise for us to go through. So I guess what I would say is, you know, come up with, like, a blueprint for what, what culture they want and make sure it's in their minds and it's on the walls and they're thinking about it and living it. And that you say it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And live it. Yeah. It's interesting that you, Asha, keep pointing out uh, that the leadership uh, can dictate the culture because there was a time where everyone hated the boss. Yeah. And I don't think that time exists anymore. Everyone loves the boss. No, no, but it <laughs> used to just be like, ah, the boss doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. But it's... True. I think what you're saying is totally true. Like, yeah. certainly we've seen it in politics these days that the people on top are dictating the way everyone is behaving in yes. negative ways. And I just hadn't occurred to me that that would be the same in a, in a workplace. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I've had the great privilege of working for some really bad CEOs and right. some really one, the current, my current CEO is like the most gifted leader I've ever come across. And right. I'm old, so I've met a lot. And of it makes them. a huge difference. And it is transformative. Yeah. And, and so that's why I keep going back to it because, you know, unfortunately, you don't, you don't always get to pick who you work for. But I wish in my earlier in my career, I'd done more research hmm. about the leaders. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. We have another question over here. Yes, sir. Not necessarily by name, but for each panelist. I'd like to know your best and worst client and why. Oh, that's good. But not necessarily by name. You just want okay. a vague sense of I would best say and worst client. Best are the ones that have, for us, uh, as far as like when, I, when we're talking about clients, I'm going to basically talk about artists. Um, the best mm -hmm. ones are the ones that have the strongest vision for themselves and mm -hmm. understand who they are, what they are, and how, how we can help them. Because that's ultimately where we're going to see the most success if we're left to to uh if we're left to uh to do that sort of creative direction and heavy lifting um it it doesn't work as well because it's not organic from the artist and so when we say when we're looking at the best ones for me those are the ones that have that strongest vision for themselves worst ones i think it's just to me it probably comes down to entitlement and just sort of feeling like they um that, that there's that opportunities are, are are deserved that maybe haven't necessarily been earned, um, or that they are sort of um, uneducated about um, you know how to uh, best sort of utilize us as a resource 
um, like is we're get, if we're getting into business with an artist, we're doing so because we believe in them and uh, because we believe we have something to offer them. And uh, if they're not willing to accept that, um, that guidance or perspective or um, whatever, then that's, that makes it really difficult. And I still love a lot of those, those people that I'm referring to, but that would probably be, unfortunately, the worst. Well, that's well put. Everyone else? Anyone um, else? For us, uh, Scripps in the United States has been <laughs> by far our best client. I thought you were interested. Yeah. Oh, no. Like, no names, no names. No, no, All by right. far. By far our best client um, and have been for 15 years. And maybe you've had a different experience, but the business no, no. affairs team there is very efficient. And uh, when push came to shove, when times were tough in Canada, and you may remember certain times when various companies were facing bankruptcy and whatever, uh, they stood behind us. And uh, we have a no rule, and we always joke about it. Scripps also has a no rule. Like, just don't work with and your life will be a lot easier. That was, um, and that was my Christmas. Other than giving goats, uh, our other Christmas gift was buying the book, the no rule, and giving it to people. Um, this year, we had, uh, we signed with an agent in the United States, a very large agency, and they brought us a project that seemed too good to be true. Uh, with a very well-known brand uh, that had a spotless reputation. Uh, I didn't do the research that we should have done because the first R of RTR is relationships um, and instead thought the agent had done that work, uh, which is a mistake I'll never make again because the brand had been bought by another company mm -hmm. and they did not live the values that the original brand had and it was a living nightmare for me and my team. Okay. So I won't make that mistake again. <laughs> Krista, do you have anything um, to say? Yeah, I can answer that quickly. Our, I would say the no rule absolutely applies to how we approach uh, our clients 100%. Um, we're very much face-to-face uh, -face, uh, engagement right off the bat, and you truly get a sense of somebody. And we work with all walks of clients in the food and beverage world and then travel. Um, our best client has been one that has been with us from the very, very beginning. It's one of the world's largest alcohol distributors that has a local uh, Canadian um, offshoot of it here. And for us, they've just, as you said, your best clients have their own vision. I think our best clients see our vision and they come in and and buy into what we're doing and get really excited about it and their eyes light up the way our eyes light up when we present our products. That is, um, for me, the check I need when I'm meeting with somebody that they get us. Because on the flip side, our worst clients are the ones that, that don't get us and they're fitting us into a mold of a print magazine that they've been buying media in for the last decade and we don't have that creativity with them. We don't have that partnership. Um, my, my commercial manager work, you know, tried very, very hard and pushed very hard with me to actually have the title of partnership manager because she said that she wakes up every day and approaches her job at a partnership level and she works with people that see us as a partner rather than a media outlet. Um, so that might be a testament to kind of how we approach all of our clients and what makes the best ones for us. Cool. And Asha, do you want to speak to the same question? Best, worst? Best, worst. I mean, you know, it's hard to say. I would say the, the best relationships we have are with producers because we're, our DNA is similar and we get each other. And, like, I, I, you know, we all love working with producers. Um, and I would say the difficult relationship we have, d difficult relationships we have are not so much a function of the organizations but of the structure of the Canadian industry of course, I'm talking about vertical integration, blah, blah, blah. I've been talking about it for six years. I'm so bored of talking about it. But, you know, when you're in a situation where you have no leverage and a huge big company has tons of leverage, it gets difficult. Okay. <laughs> we have one more question uh, over here. Yes. Thanks, Fish. Um, you talked about business models and the free aspect of subscriptions base. Um, we've heard that video is a, um, a guiding light at least within broadcast and print. Um, video production is really expensive. How are we gonna get over the hump to actually get into this business model and see positive revenues? Who, is, who can speak to that? I didn't, so sorry, what did you say was the 
the, the first part was, just tell me the first part of your question. Yeah, so we're, we're looking at a, a business models which are based on free yes. and subscription based. Yes. So, and video production is really expensive. So yes. how are we gonna get over the hump to making revenue positive? Okay, you mean as Canadian producers? So my personal view on this, having thought about it for a, a while, is that we need to break apart the current regulatory and funding regime and put it back together again. And I think we might have to throw away a lot of the ideas that we've held on to for a long time. It was a system that worked really, really well for a number of decades, but of course things have changed. And I think we've been slow as an industry and as a government to understand that we really need to address the question of the over-the-top international players that are now taking up such a big piece of revenue. So um, I, I, I guess sort of generally, I have sort of more specific ideas of exactly what rules we should change, but I would say generally my answer is, you know, come up with a way to incentivize those international players to do business in Canada and leave rights in Canada. Um, do the same with the tax credit regime uh, and have a, a regulatory um, sort of network that ensures that, that Canadian producers are, are protected better than they are now. Any other I, thoughts? I totally agree. And it, it really does need uh, a lot of work and it's not going to be an easy haul. Uh, the other thing I think is um, for us, we focused 80% of our business on our traditional model, uh, which is working with broadcasters, creating shows for them, being paid to produce those shows and distribution and where we can owning rights. And then 20% of our time is spent in exploration. And I think we as Canadian companies have to do a better job at R&D. And we have to be willing to take risks. And I know we've got um, Trina McQueen has been a guiding light for many of us in the industry and, and professionalizing what we do. And I think we have to look at business management and business risk and working with our lawyers and our accountants and our funders and creating um, a gold pot in your company when you have good times, when you have good times, you know, store it away because the transitions are constant. And if you don't do that R&D work, you're not going to find the new business models that we need to build. Okay. Does anyone have any final thoughts on that? Topic you don't have to. I just was curious. I don't want to give you the um, opportunity. A quick one that maybe wasn't. Um, I interpreted your question maybe on a smaller scale in terms of how to um, alleviate some of those costs internally. And for me, I feel very, very fortunate because of the um, demographic of employees that I have. A lot of them are coming to the table with a lot of the the skill sets already um, within their like the program. The program that I went to at Ryerson has changed drastically in the last 10 years that the people coming out of it are fully, fully caught up on video production, whether it's from their phone, using an app, or a DSLR that they're shooting 30-second clips on and uploading to Instagram. People are coming in and schooling me every day, and I don't consider myself that behind the times here, but they're coming out of school, and our interns are coming in, and impressing me every day with the, the skill set that they're bringing to the table. So I think there's a lot with the younger generation that are coming um, in prepared, almost expecting to be working in that realm, um, and you're able to do a lot internally. Um, I'm, I'm speaking, obviously, on a small scale of how we're rolling out foodism to social channels and YouTube, and a lot of that is, is based on the people already in the company saying, I'll do it, I know how to do it. Um, so I think we've been very fortunate that way. Excellent. Well, we are out of time. I want to uh, thank our panelists for being up here and for uh, offering your insight. Uh, very, very quickly, can you, each of you in a row, tell people where they can learn more about your various uh, endeavors, just so that uh, if they want to learn more, they can do so? Can like you? our website? Sure, your website or your okay. Twitter or your Facebook, whatever, yeah, your Snapchat, a, whatever it is. I'm a total Luddite, <laughs> so you just have to go to our website. There's lots of stuff there. Blueant.com. Blueant.com. We have both of our magazines um, outside. I, I think there are still some. Uh, so if you have not read our magazines yet, uh, you can grab a copy there uh, or find us on the street. Um, uh, but, I, but I mean that next, <laughs> next Tuesday to Friday, we'll have the next escapism issue out at a lot of major corners in the city. Um, and you can go to escapism.to 
or foodism.to. Um, find all of our channels that way. But head to the website. Everything's there. Thank you, Kristen. Okay. Uh, for me, our website is the best bet. It's rtrmedia.com. And if you want to see how we're playing and, and doing our 20% exploration, you would go to the Coral Channel on uh, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and our website. <laughs> you sound like you've said that before. Yeah, I have. <laughs> um, for us, you can go to weareblackbox.com um, or at weareblackbox on all the socials. Um, or if you're more interested in the personal side of things, uh, at Ian Blackbox across all socials, that's sort of uh, sometimes a little bit more active because... I'm really bad at the uh, at the corporate stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's at Vishkana. My website is vishkana.com. I'd like to ask you all to give our panelists uh, a huge round of applause. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Have a good weekend. Bye. <laughs>